0: Amen, and once again, want to welcome you if you're just joining us or if you've just jumped in recently uh, to our young adult service here on Thursday night. We're glad you're with us. My name is Pastor Brian Howard, um, and tonight uh, we get a privilege of jumping into the Gospel of Mark, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab that right now. Go to the the Gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark will be in the first chapter. That's where we're starting tonight, and I'll get to that in a second. I want to just really briefly before we jump into the Gospel of Mark tonight, um, just give you an update, kind of on where we're at and what we're thinking as it relates to returning to our campus. And and for so many of you, that's just the thing you're itching to do. Uh, Maybe you've been a YA person for a long time. Maybe you're a college student who's back for summer. uh, And this has always been a highlight of your summer, getting to gather in worship. uh, And we are eager for that day. Uh, I'm not here tonight to tell you that we have a firm date set or that we have established it. Uh, I always want you to listen to our weekend services with the hope that um, Pastor Sean would update you. But here's what I want you to know. Two things. Number one. Um, we are eager for the day that young adults gets to return to this room. Uh, and when we find out about that, the way you will know fastest is through our Instagram, okay? Uh, and so, CalvaryYA underscore, that is our Instagram. If you're not following us, that is where we're going to post it. It could be like Thursday at noon. They say, you can meet today. Uh, and if we are able to and get the approval, we will do that. So, I want to invite you to follow us on CalvaryYA. And then I also want to make you aware of another opportunity. If you missed the beginning of the service. This is so cool because we cannot gather yet as YA uh, with three to 400 of us here over the summer, but we do have an opportunity to gather for worship. I don't want you to miss that. If you missed it earlier, I want you to know that there is an opportunity this coming Tuesday for you to gather here on campus for worship. Jacob Wood's going to be leading. I'm going to be shepherding us through a worship night that we are going to host here on campus outside on our patio. And I want to invite you to join us. You know, this coming Tuesday when this worship night is at 7 p.m., it will be 100 days since we've had a worship gathering here on campus. And I don't know about you, uh, but this online thing, God has been blessing us. God has been moving, working all things together for our good. Uh, And yet there's just something so special about gathering together. And so right here at the bottom of the screen, you're going to see a number. I I want you to just text worship to that number. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a text message back. That text message is going to have a little link. It'll take you like a minute at most to fill out this little link. And it just lets us know that you're planning on coming. We have a limited number of spots for this. Um, just given how this thing works and social distancing and all of that. And so if you don't sign up, we can't, like, we can't let you hear. So you need to sign up. It doesn't cost you anything. We don't even need a ton of information. You just need to sign up. And I'm just promising you these spots are going to run out. People are excited about this. This is going to be a wonderful night. This Tuesday, 7 p.m., text Worship to the number you see here on the screen. Do it right now. Do it tonight. And you'll join us this Tuesday. And we'll continue to do these on Tuesdays going through the summer until we're able to gather once more. I hope you can join us in worship this Tuesday for the first time in 100 days that we get to worship together. So that's coming up. That's what you can look forward to. Follow us on Instagram. Make sure you get the update. Join us on Tuesday. Now I wanna jump into the Gospel of Mark. Um, and, and here's what I wanna do. Um, we had a bunch of plans for young adults here this year for 2020. I'll, I'll actually share a few of them. I've, I've maybe not shared this before. Um, but our plan was during the spring, really all the way from Easter up until the summer began, um, was to do a big series on relationships. And so on guys and girls and marriage and dating and sex and singleness and all of these different things. We had a whole plan that we were gonna do this. And then all of this happened and just kind of disrupted that plan And then our plan for the summer was to do a series on apologetics, uh, on defending the faith and kind of how we could uh, make a reasonable faith, a reasonable argument for who Jesus is and the existence of God and the authority of the Bible. And we wanted to do both of those series. But the reason we punted on those is because we believe those are series that are best done when we're actually in person. That There were some things we wanted to do to put those together. And so I want you to know we're still planning on doing those teaching series. We think both of those subjects are important for us. Us to talk about, but we're going to wait until at least most of us are gathered back here in this room. So as we started to think, okay, once Philippians is done, what do we want to do this summer? Uh, a few thoughts kind of came together for us, and that's, this is just a prelude to getting into why we're going into Mark. Here, here's the first one. Um, Really, I would say the bread and butter of what YA does is just teaching books of the Bible. Um, We do topical series sometimes. We bring up subjects and kind of teach through them for a few weeks. Uh, But we have just found such a hunger in young people, including yourself, to just open the word of God and let it speak to us and go through and just march through a text. And so that's what we said. Okay, let's this summer just kind of find another book of the Bible and work our way through it. And then the second thing that kind of occurred to us was this, Um, really with all of the stuff going on in the world and all of just the chaos, all of the commotion, all of the noise in the media, um, all of the stuff with the economy, all of everything that's going on, we just felt like it was more important than ever for us to set our eyes on Jesus. And that has just always been the answer for me. When things seem um, confusing, unclear, anything like that, uh, I need to find my eyes and find my focus on Jesus. And that's what we're going to do as we work through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to set our eyes on Jesus. And then here's the final thing I want to say, and this is something unusual for us here in young adults. We don't know how long this series is going to go. And I'm not saying that because we haven't made any plans or we're not really thinking it through or we're just flying by the seat of our pants. We are saying that because we're going to teach this series on Mark until we sense that God is leading us otherwise. And that's uncomfortable for me. I usually have everything planned out a year in advance. I know exactly where we're going, Uh, but I just really sense from the Holy Spirit that we are in a season where God just wants us to look at the gospel of Mark. Could be a couple of weeks, could be a couple of months, could be a couple of decades, who knows? But our plan is to look at the gospel of Mark, to walk through it slowly, to consider it carefully, and most of all, to set our eyes on Jesus So that's the plan, that's what we're gonna do. I wanna talk to you before we jump into the first verse of the Gospel of Mark, about a little bit about the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I'm gonna tell you this, and really this is for our people in the tech booth booth as well. Um, I had all of these slides created where I was gonna teach through um, some basics about the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna scrap all of those. Really, I just wanna talk to you about the gospel of Mark for a minute or two and get right into the text itself because the most important thing isn't what I think, it's not my opinion, it's not my research, it is what God actually is speaking to us. So here's what you need to know uh, about the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark, if you've never studied, it is one of four stories about Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the questions that you've maybe never wrestled with sincerely is why does God give us four gospels rather than one? Why not just take all of the stuff in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and put it into one big, longer gospel? And I don't want to speak to God and try to pretend I understand his mind as much as I want to point out that the gospels tell the story of the same Jesus, but they tell it from a different angle. It was like if something crazy happened in your city, in your town, at your school, and you heard one person's angle, you would go around asking other people, did you see it? Did you see this? Tell me what you saw. You would try to get as many eyewitness accounts as you could. And what the four gospels give us is four perspectives on Jesus, showing us different things about who Jesus is. So so let me share a few unique things about the gospel of Mark here. Here's the first, the gospel of Mark is overwhelmingly likely the earliest gospel written meaning it was the first one that got written down, the first story of Jesus that was ever written. So think of it as the most ancient story of Jesus there was. Some scholars would say as early as 50 AD, so just 20 years after Jesus' death. Some would say as late as maybe 60s, mid-60s, late 60s. But either way, it is written right after Jesus' death. The the Gospel of Mark, uh, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, what was a friend, perhaps even an interpreter of Peter. And so he's listening to Peter's stories and listening to Peter preach. And what he's doing is he's taking those stories that he's translating into a different language and he's writing them down. The Gospel of Mark is early. The Gospel of Mark was written by a guy named John Mark, who was an accomplice, maybe even a translator of Peter. Uh, And then here's the final thing I want you to know. Um, The Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel of the four. You might actually know this, but you might not know this. That the Gospel of Mark is incredibly short compared to Matthew or to John or to Luke. It's so short. It's one of those Gospels that just has a fast pace to it. Now The way I put the Gospel of Mark is like the highlight reel. Like if you've ever been to summer camp or, or winter camp or church camp of any kind, At the end of camp, you you probably remember on that last day they showed the highlight reel, right? Like the recap video. And it's like a two to three minute video with some great music to it that shows all of the highlight moments of camp. That's the gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is this fast-paced, it doesn't elaborate on everything, it just shows you the highlights of Jesus' life. It's not a live stream of showing all this long journey of Jesus, these long dialogues he has. Jesus is doing things, it's quick, it's action-packed. One of Mark's favorite words is the word, immediately. Immediately. Immediately, like things happen in the gospel of Mark quickly. It's the highlight reel of Jesus's life. And I think it's a significant book for us to consider this summer. And so without further ado, I want to jump in tonight. We're just going to cover the first verse, okay? So if you're like, wow, this was a long-winded introduction. We're covering one verse tonight. And I want you to see how powerful this is. An introduction and a title really to the entire Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you're in your Bible, I always want you to have that open before you. Here's what it says it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So here's the very first words of the Gospel of Mark. Mark sits down to write a story about Jesus, and he says this: this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, I want to break this verse into a few different parts, and I want to start with the first words, these two words, the beginning. It's the beginning. In the Greek, it is the arche. The arche is the beginning, the the very start. It's the same exact word when they translated Genesis chapter one that says in the beginning into Greek, they use the word arche, the beginning. So what's actually happening here is this this very intentional word where the beginning of the gospel of Mark begins with the same word that the Bible begins with. But like, think about this. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God did this. And then what Mark is trying to show is that God is writing a new story through Jesus. So when you see the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this isn't just a substitute for, once upon a time, here was a story, or here's how the thing went. Mark here is very intentionally using the same words that begin the book of Genesis, begin the Bible, begin the first words of what God was doing, saying God has always been doing something. But now in Jesus, God is doing a new thing. And here's what I want you to know this summer as we think about Jesus, as we study the gospel of Mark, as we consider this ancient, this first gospel that was ever written, as we consider this text, I want you to think about the fact that to follow Jesus is to believe that there is a new beginning that God wants to start in your own life. Like God is a God of new beginnings. The story of Jesus is Jesus entering into the world that was dead and dying and lifeless and bringing new life into it, a new story. But like, maybe let me ask you a few questions as you consider the gospel of Mark this summer. Here's the first one. Um, What if you started to let Jesus write a new story in your life this summer? And when I say this, here's what I mean. What if you started to let Jesus tell a new story about your life, to change some of the old habits, some of the old beliefs, some of the old ways you approach life, and allow Jesus to start telling a new story in your life? And here's what I challenge you. It's not to let Jesus start writing a new story once life gets back to normal. It's that you would allow him to do it now, in the midst of this summer, this abnormal summer 2020 that you're going to tell your kids about, this abnormal season of life that you're going to talk about for the rest of your life. What if you decided, I'm going to let Jesus write a new story, a story of hope and a story of love and a story of generosity and a story of faith and a story of boldness and a story of courage in your life. What if you started to let Jesus write a new story in your own life this summer? Uh, And then second question, what if you started to let Jesus tell a new story in your family this summer? Like some of you live with your family or you're home for summer with your family and others you don't live with your family. Uh, And some of you have a great relationship with your family, but some of you don't. Uh, And so to the person who doesn't have a great relationship with their family, here's what I've noticed, that, that sometimes what can happen is we can have a rocky relationship with our family. And sometimes that's deserved, right? Like sometimes that comes out of this real dark, painful place. But, but I think what can happen sometimes with family especially is we can just kind of lock ourselves into that's always the way things are going to be. So you and your mom have this relationship and it's always gonna be this way. Or you and your little brother have this relationship and it's always going to be that way. But to follow Jesus is to believe that as God works on your heart, as God grows you, as Jesus enters into the picture, there's a new story. And a new story doesn't mean everything's perfect. It doesn't mean everything's better in an instant. It just means that if you allow God to do something in your heart, he can start writing a new story in your closest relationships this summer. And then here's the final question. What if we start to let Jesus tell a new story in our world this summer? Like as you think about Jesus, as you set your eyes on him, if you, as you think about the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel, what if Jesus started to tell a new story in our church, a new story in our world? What if all of that we've been through in 2020 is really just the beginning of a story that God wants to tell in our world and in our church and in our community? What if all of this just really comes back to and we look back years from now and go, God was just doing something and we didn't even realize it was the beginning of something spectacular. See, when Jesus came onto the scene, no one realized that it was the beginning of something that would change the entire world and change their eternities. But that was what Mark was writing about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, We'll go back to that first verse. It's the beginning, and then it says, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, When you see the gospel, there are often two meanings that kind of pop into our minds. So the first is one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's an accurate way of referring to them, but the only reason we refer to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the gospels, is it's because it's the story of the gospel. Gospel. So this can be confusing sometimes, but it's less confusing when you understand what this word actually means. In the Greek, it's the word "euangelion." Eu, E-U, means a good thing, and then "angelion" is a message or tidings. The gospel literally means the good news the good tidings. Like imagine right now in the middle of this sermon, if someone were to call you on your phone and you picked up and you're like, hold on, Brian's preaching, he's yelling about something, I don't know what that is. And they're like, no, no, I gotta talk to you right now. I've got great news for you. You would wanna know, right? Like if someone called you right now and said, I have great news, you'll never believe what happened. You would be so excited to hear it. It's an announcement. It's not a command. It's not a statement about the world. It is an announcement of something. The gospel is this good news. And here's what it is. That the gospel is the announcement that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. When Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel, what he's saying is it's the beginning of an announcement. And the announcement is that because of what you're about to read about in the gospel of Mark, because of the story you're about to read in the next 15, 16 chapters, you are about to see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's what I need you to know if you are not a Christian and somehow you're listening tonight or listening in on live stream right now, I want you to know that the center of Christian faith is the announcement that your sins can be forgiven. Not on your effort, not on your energy, not on your good works, not on you feeling sorry enough, not on you giving money or doing good deeds or any of that, that your sins have been forgiven on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that God extends that offer to you. To the person who's listening and goes, I'm too far from God. God would never want anything to do with me. I've sinned too much. I've fallen too short. I've never wanted anything to do with him. Here's the wonderful news of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that God holds out his gift of life to you. And if you are not a Christian tonight, I want to invite you to put your faith and trust in this Jesus that we're going to be looking at. I want to invite you to put your faith and trust in this Jesus that we're going to be talking about all summer And then if you are a Christian, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to focus your eyes in on this, that your sins have been forgiven. It's the announcement that your sins have been forgiven. Not that they will be forgiven or might be forgiven or should be forgiven. It is the announcement that your sins have been forgiven. Child of God who is a Christian, I need you to stop believing that there is anything that could happen that would remove God's forgiveness of your sins. I need you to stop believing for even a moment that your behavior, your addiction, your failure, your past, your activity or behavior could somehow take away what God has already done. Your sins have been forgiven. A one-time action that needs never be repeated. And here's where I think so many of us struggle. I think we struggle with the fact that God has forgiven our sins. That's the whole story of the gospel. He's forgiven our sins. And yet there are moments we don't feel like that's true. Let me put it to you this way. So this last week, an opportunity to go up to Lake Tahoe. Um, To visit my parents, they just recently moved to Incline Village in Nevada, so we got to go out there and just go visit them uh, and surprise my dad for his 60th birthday. So flew out to Tahoe, surprised my dad for his birthday. Uh, The next day, on his birthday, after we had flown in, uh, we decided to rent a boat and go out on Lake Tahoe. So we go out on Lake Tahoe on this boat, uh, and we're just driving around. It's me, my mom, my brother, and my dad. Uh, And then the guy who's driving the boat says, "Does anyone want to ride on the tube on the back of the boat?" And it was freezing, but I was out on. Tahoe. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do this. And so I was getting ready, putting on a life jacket. And the guy says to me, you might want to take off your wedding ring. And I thought to myself, it's fine. It's my wedding ring. It'll stay on. I'm not worried. And that was the beginning of a really bad decision because I get onto the tube and I'm holding onto the tube and he hits it and I'm holding on real tight. And it doesn't take very long for the tube to flip over my hands wrench free of it. And as that happens, my wedding ring plops right into the lake. And my first instinct was, I'm going to dive and get it. But then I remember that I am in a lake that is 52 degrees and 1,000 feet deep. And this ring is gone forever. And so here I am tonight, preaching to you without a wedding ring on. I have a new one. It's in the mail. Lord willing, it'll come soon. But, But here's what I feel tonight. It feels weird. And that might sound odd to you, but it feels weird. For the last seven years, I've been wearing a wedding ring. It got put on my finger on this stage I'm standing on right now, seven years ago. It feels weird. So I call my wife, who wasn't there with me. I just said, I lost my wedding ring. It's at the bottom of the lake. She goes, it's not a big deal. We'll just order a new one. Don't worry about it. It's okay. But here's the truth, and this is why I'm sharing this story. The last week has felt so weird for me. Because I'm not wearing this wedding ring. And there are moments where I wake up and don't see a ring on it. And I think something's wrong or something's off. And then there's like this deep feeling inside of me that something is wrong. But here's the truth of the matter. And here's what everyone listening to my voice right now knows. The fact that my wedding ring is sitting at the bottom of a lake in Northern California, Nevada. The fact that that is happening and not on my ring or not on my finger doesn't make my marriage invalid. It doesn't make me not married. It doesn't affect my marriage in any conceivable way. Like my feeling doesn't, like doesn't negate the covenant I made. And here's what I need someone to hear tonight. Maybe this is just for one person. That your feelings don't affect God's forgiveness. But like, just like me with my wedding ring, I feel like something's off. I feel like something's amiss. I feel like something's weird. But the real truth is that hasn't affected my marriage at all. Here's what someone needs to hear. Just because you don't feel forgiven doesn't mean you aren't. Just because you don't feel like God loves you doesn't mean he doesn't. Just because you don't feel like you're right with God and God has fully forgiven your sins doesn't mean it isn't true. See, because of the gospel is not the announcement that if you're really good, God will continue to forgive your sins. It's that he already has forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. Like you need to understand Jesus has forgiven sins you haven't even committed yet. And just because you don't feel like that's the case doesn't mean it isn't so. I just want to release someone tonight who's been feeling so heavy, so guilty, so shame-filled. Like, I know God says he forgave me, but I don't know how that can be. Your experience of guilt and shame and emotion does not negate God's forgiveness of you. See, so here's the first verse, verse of the Gospel of Mark. So this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of this good news of Jesus' forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The word Jesus actually comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. And so if you know anything about the Old Testament or the character or the book Joshua, it's the same name. It's the name Joshua and translated to Yeshua, which in English gets to us as Jesus. And Jesus is this rescuing one, this one who draws out and redeems and rescues and saves his people. And then Jesus is always attached to this word Christ. Now here's what I need you to know. And some of you know this and maybe some of you don't. Christ Christ was not Jesus's last name. He's not like, hey, Mr. Christ, welcome. You're so glad you're here. It was not Jesus's last name. Christ was not a name. Christ is a title. Christ is a title, and Christ comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. And so if you ever heard Jesus the Messiah, it is the same exact sentence as Jesus Christ. Christ and Messiah mean the exact same thing in two different languages, Hebrew and Greek. And so when I say Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, those are interchangeable terms. And here's what those terms mean. The Christ, the Messiah, literally means the anointed one. The anointed one. And here's what that suggests. It suggests that this is the individual, this is the one that God has anointed or especially equipped to take care of the problem at hand. Uh, In the ancient scriptures, in the Old Testament, what would happen is there would be a king who was anointed and that king was anointed by God, often anointed with oil to take care of a problem that was plaguing the people of God, to rescue them from the hand of the enemy. And so when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, what we are saying is that Jesus is the anointed one, God's chosen instrument to defeat the enemy and rescue his people. But like, let me put it to you this way. Um, I, I think if you've gone through this year and, and not felt at times um, just this like overwhelming sense of heaviness, um, you, you're probably not paying attention or you're not being honest with yourself or you're super, super forgetful. Like, like This has happened this year. It's been this heavy year where we felt this weight on our shoulders for so many different reasons and the things keep piling up and keep piling up. And to think about this and to feel this way, I don't know if you felt this way, but I want to share how I felt at times. At times, I have just been desperate for someone to come figure this out for us. But like on a national scene, on an international scene, in our own hearts, in our own lives, there's just been this hope of like, what if there could be someone who could come figure this out? Be a uniting figure who brings together our nation and brings together our world. And I don't mean in a weird like he's king of the world thing. I just mean someone who can step in and bring healing, step in and make things right, step in and save the day. And then we're gearing up for a presidential election and we're like, okay, we ought to pick one of these guys. And you're like, no and no, and I don't know what to do. And listen, you can pick one of those guys, but that deep sense you have that, that, that someone needs to come in and step in and save the day. That deep thing you're reaching for. Here's what I want to suggest to you. That the deep longing you have for someone to come and make everything right is actually a longing for Jesus. That, that deep sense you have that the world is messed up. Things aren't the way they should be. And someone should come make this right is actually at the bottom. Uh, uh, this desire for Jesus It's the reason every time you watch a movie where someone comes in and the hero saves the day, you're so deeply moved by it. Even though it's the same movie over and over and over again, the same hero's journey, you're moved by that. Because underneath it, God has wired in you a desire for Jesus. When you read a book about someone who comes in and takes a hopeless situation and makes it right, it's because you're wired to want that Messiah, that Jesus who would step in and save the day. But like we are so wired by God to have this desire that someone would come in, this specially anointed person, and save the day. Like literally just this last week, my wife and I experienced this. So last Sunday, um, Pastor Sean Thornton was preaching here over the weekend. And as he was talking about racial issues, he, he talked about a book, which was actually made into a movie as well, called Just Mercy. And so I'll show you this here. And Just Mercy um, is written about this guy who is a lawyer. And this lawyer comes into Alabama and he comes into situations. Where people are on death row uh, and they have been wrongly convicted wrongly put on death row uh, where there's racism and corruption and all of these things tied together and the story I don't want to tell you or spoil the whole story is about he comes in and saves the day he comes into this person who's been wrongly convicted and he comes in to make things right. And Danny and I are watching this movie, which I would recommend to you fully and completely worth every minute of your time to sit and think and consider this film. But, but we're watching it and we're so deeply moved by this individual. We're so deeply moved. His name is Brian Stevenson. We're so deeply moved by him. But the truth is we're moved by him because underneath that is that desire we have for Jesus to come and make all things right. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, The Messiah is the anointed one who's gonna come make all things right. And the desire we have as Christians is that Jesus would come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is the blessed hope of the Christian church that there will come a day where there's someone who will return to make all things right. And his name is Jesus, the Christ. Here's back to the first verse of the gospel of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then here's the final thing we'll look at tonight. This is the Son of God. Now when I say Son of God to you, that probably doesn't come off as particularly shocking or alarming because you've read the Bible. In fact, many of you grew up reading the Bible and so you've always known the Bible and so the Son of God doesn't sound like that interesting to you. You know that God is the Father and Jesus is the Son and so that sits well with you. But here's what I need you to understand. When Mark first wrote this in the 50s or 60s of the first century, this was a controversial thing to say at the very least. I want you to understand, when Mark wrote that this is Jesus the Christ, and then he wrote these words, the Son of God, he knew he was writing something scandalous. And I want to show you why. And in order to show you why, I want to nerd out for you with just a second. Um, not in, if you were here last or a couple of weeks ago, I looked at ancient texts or different things like this. I want to actually take you to the world of archaeology and biblical archaeology. I want to show you these two coins. Can I show you these two coins? All right, here we go. So um, this one is just kind of a side-by-side comparison, but I actually want you to see this right here. What you're looking at here is a coin, and on it, it says Augustus. It's Augustus Caesar. It's the emperor. It's the one who sits enthroned over everyone else. This is Augustus, and his image is stamped on a coin. And if you think it's really strange that his image is stamped on a coin, look at any coin you've ever picked up from our country and you'll find a person's image stamped on that. It says Augustus. And then, here's what's really fascinating about this coin it says, you'll see over here the words or the letters in Latin D I V I, Divi. Divi which is this word that means divine. So, so what it says here is that Augustus is divine. And, and then you'll see a little dot and then you'll see the letter F. And what the letter F is, is it's short. You can tell they didn't have enough space to put it all out here, but it is the word phileus. And phileus is the Latin word for son. So if you put the dots together there, here's what's saying. This is Augustus, the son of God. This is Caesar Augustus, the emperor, and he is the son of God. See, so here's what every person living in the Roman emperor, empire knew for sure, that someone was the Lord, someone was the king, someone was the God above all gods, and in fact was even the son of God. But no one thought that was Jesus. Everyone thought it was Caesar. If you were to ask someone, right as Jesus was doing his ministry, who is the son of God? No one would have said Jesus. Everyone would have said Caesar Augustus is the son of God. He is the Divi Filius. He is the son of God. That's God's son. And the very first words are the very first sentence of the first story ever written about the life of Jesus commits treason against the greatest empire the world has ever known. Think about this for a second. The very first words of the gospel say, this is the, good, the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. In other words, Caesar is not the son of God. Caesar is not God's son, it's Jesus. Caesar is not the divinely king of kings and Lord of lords who will be above all things. It is Jesus. So when Mark writes these words, the very first sentence of the very first story about the life of Jesus, he commits treason against Caesar. The highest power in the world by saying Caesar is not king. Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not God's son. Jesus is. Like like sometimes in America as Christians, we kind of get like defensive, like the authorities are against us and people are against us. And I think that can absolutely be the case. But I need us to understand this is not the first time this happened. Because as the Bible's being written and they're writing that Jesus is the son of God, there are Roman citizens by the millions surrounding them going, no, 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 Jesus isn't God's son, it's Caesar. And to say anything else is treason. And that's what the earliest Christians did. The earliest Christians stood up against the Roman Empire and all of their might and all of their cruelty and all of their anger and all of their will to conquer and dominate and said, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. Like, I think this is so profound. Caesar isn't the son of God, Jesus is. Because here's what's been true since the first Christians lived. And here's what's true for us now. That to believe Jesus is to boldly reject the authority of the wicked powers in this world. For the earliest Christians, they stood up against the Roman empire who said, Caesar is the son of God. And they said, no, no, Jesus is. They said, Caesar is Lord. They said, no, 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 Jesus is. Caesar is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They said, no, 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 Jesus is. And it cost them their lives and it cost them their homes and it cost them their jobs and it cost them everything. But they boldly stood up against it because they so believed what Mark is writing in his gospel, what we're going to see this summer. And so here's what I need us to understand. That that is the continued call for the people of God, to stand up against the wicked powers and wicked authorities in this world, whether it be governments, whether it be culture, whether it be politics, whether it be education or media or entertainment or the spiritual powers in this world. Our job is to stand up and reject the authority of the powers who would speak against Jesus, who would speak against us. It's to stand up against the authority and the powers in this world that would stand against the purposes of God in this world it's for us to declare boldly the truth and the reality of Jesus in the midst of powers like racism and sexism and oppression and hate and, and like diminishment of the poor like all of the, it's for us to stand against societal pressures but but also the wicked powers that fight against and war against our own heart and spirit it's for us to war against lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the greed that so easily entangles us as followers of Jesus We are called to boldly reject the the authority of the world, boldly reject people who would stand against Jesus, and and we are called to be faithful to him. So let me just be really clear, because that kind of sounds like a nice concept, but what does that actually mean? I want to talk about how followers of Jesus reject the authority of these wicked powers. Like if there's all this wickedness around us, if there's wickedness in society and wickedness in institutions and wickedness in authority and wickedness in government, how do we stand against that as Christians? I want to give you four specific ways. First is this. We recognize. We recognize the depth of evil in this world. Like we don't downplay it. We don't pretend it's not there. We don't do everything we can to shut our eyes to it and hope it'll never come into our hearts or our homes. We recognize the depth of evil in this world. If you've fallen into some silly notion that the world is just getting better and better and better and everything's just wonderful and easy and good for everyone, you, you will never be able to resist the wickedness and the authority of the powers in this world. The first is we recognize the depth of evil in this world. The second, is that we repent of the evil in our own heart. But like you need to understand that, that if you want to reject, if you want to fight against the authority of these wicked powers in this world, you need to repent of the evil in your heart. You need to recognize that the mission of Jesus is first to save your soul. But like you cannot help the world. You cannot participate in the mission of God until you recognize that the mission of God has come for you. That there's wickedness in your own heart. There's things you need to repent of. There's things you need to turn from. You need to repent of the wickedness in your own heart. Jesus says it this way. He says, you need to remove the speck out of your own eye before you remove the log in your brother's eye. The next is we reject the values of this world. The values of this world say be greedy and hold on to everything and the, to reject it is to be generous. The values of this world says hold things against people and never let them off the hook and then what the values of Jesus say forgive them. To reject the values of this world isn't to reject the people of this world. We are called to love the people but we are called to reject the value systems of this world that say sex and money and power is all that really matters and so fight after those things. And then finally, here's the final thing. We rejoice in the promise of victory over this world. See, one of the things you're gonna see, child of God, as you study the gospel of Mark with us this summer, one of the things you're gonna recognize really quickly uh, is that Jesus has the authority over every bit of wickedness in this world. You're gonna see Jesus casting out demons. You're gonna see Jesus fighting off people who are wicked and cruel and twisted in their ways. You're gonna see Jesus showing his mighty power that the gospel of Mark is a powerful Jesus where we see Jesus moving in power through this world. And one of the things we recognize and rejoice in is that Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome all things and that we as followers of Jesus will rejoice in his victory, not our victory, not how strong we are, not how wonderful we are, not how much we've got it together, but to, re- to respond to the wickedness of this world is to say this, that one day Jesus is gonna come overcome all of it. But like one day racism is no longer going to reign. One day oppression is no longer going to reign. One day hate is no longer going to reign. One day poverty will no longer reign. Like there will come a day where Jesus in his righteousness reigns over this earth. See, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is for us to recognize that this Jesus is the true son of God, the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords, the true authority over all things. And we reject the wickedness of this world, not on our own strength, but on his. You see, I told you that the very beginning of the gospel begins with a title, a sentence, that this is the beginning of the good news of of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I, I wanna just show you before we end tonight how the gospel ends See, the gospel ends with Jesus being arrested and Jesus put on trial. And as many of you know, he's put on a a Roman cross and he's put on that cross and he's ultimately crucified and he's ultimately dead. And here's what happens in Mark chapter 15 and, and verse 37. I want you to see what happens here. It says in Mark 15, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Now, I wanna point out to you that this is a centurion. Uh, I want you to remember who the centurion works for. The centurion works for the Roman army, which means he's part of the Roman government, which means ultimately he's somewhere up the, 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 the pecking chain, right, like he's somewhere down here, but his ultimate boss is Caesar, right? His ultimate boss is the emperor, and his boss is the emperor. His livelihood depends on the emperor. He's in the service of the emperor. He's a soldier for the emperor. He fights and does violence for the emperor. This soldier works for the emperor who he believes to be the Divius Felis, the son of God. This is a soldier who works for Caesar, and yet he sees Jesus die. These things happen, and here's the final thing I want to show you tonight. This soldier declares this. Surely, this man was the Son of God. That's what the Gospel of Mark is about. It's about taking the individual who thinks this world is spectacular and has their eyes set on all of the things of this world, who is intimidated by the powers and the authority of things in this world, and it sets their eyes on Jesus That's what I hope for you this summer. I hope reading the gospel of Mark puts steel in your spine this summer, makes you the type of person who is courageous to face a hostile world, not because you're strong, but because you recognize just like this soldier that surely Jesus is the son of God and no one else. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. That's the invitation for you this summer, just like this Roman soldier, to declare that this Jesus is the divine son. This Jesus is the Christ, the one who's gonna come rescue. And this is good news for your life. It is good news for your story. And it is good news for our world. I wanna invite you to study the gospel of Mark with us, that you might have the kind of courage that comes from this man's declaration, that surely this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you for the gospel of Mark. God, help us study it carefully. Help us look deeply into Jesus. God, it's so easy just to blow through and I just wanna look at who Jesus is and I wanna look fully into his face. God, as the old hymn says, I want the things of this earth, the things I'm so obsessed with to just grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. God, for whoever's listening right now, I pray the same would be true over them this summer, that they would look at Jesus, consider Jesus, think about Jesus. And then in thinking about Jesus, they would be filled with the same kind of courage that allows them to declare, surely this man is the son of God. It's in that man's name. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, we pray. Amen.